This week in Retronauts, we open the pod bay doors. And welcome to episode mystery of Retronauts. I don't know what number this is going to be because we record them in batches in advance. It's uh, the Costco approach. I bet it's 53. Maybe. I'm just guessing. I, you could be right. I actually don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'm hosting this week. I'm Jeremy Parrish. And crowding into this tiny, hot, unventilated little studio, we have, as usual... I am RWM. Uh, oh. Because we're talking about HAL today, oh. yeah, which stands for nothing, but they stand for good games, I think. <laughs> I'm a little loopy from the last episode. That, that's Bob Mackey. Yeah, hi. Um, also, next to Bob. Uh, I'm HLG. Henry, <laughs> sorry, well, I have at least two of the letters. Of Everybody needs to do this now. I'm Henry Gilbert. Hi. Hello. And finally. Uh, I don't have any of the letters that overlap. It's just Christian, not from Gama Sutra. Hi, Christian. Thanks for joining us. So yes, this week we are talking about HAL, HAL Laboratories, um, kind of as a tribute to Satoru Iwata, who uh, news of his passing broke during our last uh, recording session for Retronauts, and we all agreed we should do an episode on HAL because he played such an integral part in in that studio. And uh, so here we are, paying tribute to his work and also the company he helped establish. So um, I'm not sure how this one's going to go. Uh, it's one of those that's going to be kind of a historical breakdown, and maybe we'll end up talking about some games. There are some games, definitely, that they've made that we've played and probably have a lot to say about, but this isn't necessarily about the games themselves more as much as it is the company. Um, so, yeah, what 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 was your first experience with HAL, everyone? I'm, I'm just curious. Like, when did you become aware of their existence? Let's see. I definitely played. I played the Kirby games in their day in on the NES and Super NES. But I think when I really recognized Hal as like a name on stuff was like their Pokemon work on N sixty four. Actually, like as their the logo of the cute dog and all that stuff. Like Pokemon and and Smash Brothers. Those were the two big ones for me. I think. Yeah, I think it was the same for me. Just just seeing their name on things that I thought were Nintendo games. I mean, that they were Nintendo games, but the idea of there being like a second party or like another developer was was weird to me. But I, I'm pretty sure I, I played The Adventures of Lolo. That was my first Hell game. Yeah. And it made me learn to hate Sokoban or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Lolo's great, though. It's so much better than Sokoban. I love how cute it is, but man, is it hard. Yeah, no, I'd probably say Adventures of Lolo is uh, where I sort of became aware of Hell as an entity. Um they made NES games. I never really paid that much attention to HAL in that era. Starting on the SNES, I started to pay a little more attention. Um, I always wanted to play Kirby games, but they always came out at the end of the generation. Mm-hmm. And always, I, I, like the SNES and SNES, I kept skipping the Kirby games. Gosh, Christian, you sound so muted. Anyway, um, <laughs> my, uh, my, my first, the first awareness I had of HAL... Like, I saw their logo on boxes, but the first time I was really like, huh, how, was when their logo appeared in that blitz of developer logos at the beginning of EarthBound. Uh-huh. It's like oh, yeah. 20 different logos. <laughs> Ape, Hal, Nintendo. Were um, they Halkin? 
at, on the they, on that they've screen? been Halkin sometimes. I okay. don't know what that name is about. I didn't see. I any... do know what it's about. Oh, what is that about? So it stands for Halkenkujo, which means like Hal Laboratory in oh, Japanese. Okay. <laughs> so it's Japanese. There you go. Um, yeah. So so they've they've been around. If you owned a Nintendo system throughout the years, you almost certainly have played a Hal game. Um, whether you like Kirby or Smash Brothers or just odd little NES games that people kind of vaguely remember, like Air Fortress. Yeah, the weird HAL game I realized that is the first time I like deliberately remember buying a HAL game, like looking at the ad, deciding to buy the game, was Arcana for the SNES. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. looks so cool. I love that game. Uh, so anyway, HAL was established in uh, February of 1980. And uh, it was basically just a bunch of dudes who kind of knew each other in college and would hang out and program video games together for their own amusement. And eventually they kind of said, uh, why don't we make a company out of this? And they did. Um, I, I had trouble when I was doing research for this episode finding exactly when they published their first game. Like some sources say 1981 and some sources say 1985. Hmm. So my thought is probably that their early games pre-1985 were just sort of like, you know, that uh, mail order yeah. in the back of a magazine style like – we make our own five and a quarter inch diskettes and put them in a plastic bag and mail them to you. The notion of publishing was is, is quite right. uh, nascent at yes. the time. So they they did the Akalabeth thing, and then I think 1985 was their first actual published, available at retail in a package proper video game. The story but, I heard, sorry, about their founding was that. It was some people who were involved in the like the computer department at Seibu Department Store in Tokyo. Have you ever heard this? Mm, I haven't heard wow. that. No. no, like what I heard was that, and I I should have reread it before saying this, I guess. But so Seibu is a big department store chain in Japan. Um, that the people who worked in the computer department or something like they had demo machines there, and people like I, I, what I'd read was Iwata came in and would like mess around with the demo machines and show off the stuff he was working on when he was like really young. Hmm. And that that impressed them, and like that's how he got involved. Whether they were the people who worked at the department store, or they came to the department store also, and it was sort of like a commingling gathering place for like early like hmm. programmers in Tokyo. I did or not see that information anywhere online, but it sounds plausible, and yeah. I totally I want to believe that's the case. It yeah. does seem like the bunch of college buddies is a very common like early Japanese developer story. Like yeah, Square, I mean they they really were like at the beginning just kind of your prototypical standard Japanese little developer making computer games that, you know, a few hundred people would play. Right, Enix. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, we, we talked in the uh, the Dragon Quest episode about how Enix had these uh, competitions where people would just, like, send in game concepts. And it really was this sort of, like, guerrilla, off-the-cuff market. The, the Japanese computer PC market took a while to become established. They all did, all the, globally yeah. speaking. You know, there wasn't an infrastructure, and the companies that manufactured the computers didn't give the same kind of boost that you would expect from, like, a quote-unquote platform holder right. these days. But but you did see in, in the West um, sort of companies develop as publishers like Infocom mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, some some other uh, publishers. Broderbund. Was, yeah, Broderbund. was very much a publisher. Yeah, right? and... Um, you know, Enix was one of the early ones along those lines. But for the most part, it was just like anyone and everyone, you know, just like in the UK with the the Spectrum uh, scene. It was just tons of tiny little developers. No one ever hears about these days. Hal was one of those that actually managed to survive. 
and you know went beyond that marketplace and eventually they they switched entirely from PC development to console development which is kind of the way the Japanese uh, games industry went I think but they were they were definitely sort of on the early lip of that transition um, anyway so the name Hal not surprisingly comes from Hal 9000 the artificial intelligence in the movie 2001 uh, that was that's been a big influence on Japanese game developers. <laughs> I mean, how many how many howls are there in video games? There was uh, obviously Otakon in Metal Gear Solid. Who uh, there's even a Hal Dave joke at the end of Metal Gear Solid. If you get uh, if you one of the fail Meryl, yeah, if you yeah. if you let Meryl die, <clears throat> but why would you do Spoilers. that? Spoilers, <laughs> don't um, do that. Sometimes you're not fast enough at pressing a button, man. That's all. And remember, there are no continues, my friend. Um, so, so. The, oh wait, the, the, the I, I heard something else too. Oh yeah, this could be a coincidence, but every letter of their name is one okay, less so this than is where IBM. I'm going. Okay, I'm did sorry. Did you read my notes? You I did, but I, I just glanced at them. I'm sorry. So in the movie, in the movie or the book, the novel by Arthur C. Clarke, Hal stood for uh, heuristic algorithmic, uh, which was the name, like the 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 I guess description of the computer processes the. That, that generated its artificial intelligence. But someone noticed at some point that H-A-L is one letter before – one letter in the alphabet before I-B-M for each each character. And we're like, hey, were you trying to make a statement about IBM? And uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were like, uh, no, that was not intentional. And actually IBM was one of our partners on this movie and we weren't trying, <laughs> oh, to, no. we weren't trying to assassinate them or you know, impugn them. If we, had known, if we had noticed that, we probably would have changed Hal's name. But they didn't. Okay. And so, <clears throat> so that kind of became an element of lore. But according to the Zombie U episode or edition of Iwata Asks, uh, Iwata said, yeah, we actually latched onto that. We wanted to be one ahead of IBM in every respect. So wow. that came so out they of the borrowed their name. U? Yeah, right? Okay. It'll get weird every once – like, yeah, you have, that's why you have to read every Iwata ask because he'll just drop knowledge at any point. He's like, you know, that reminds me of when I was 26 and he'll, he'll just like spout some crazy bit of knowledge. Yeah, I don't even remember what the context for that was, but I, I had to look that up. I was like, I know he said that, so I I went searching and it was in Zombie U. Wow. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, so anyway, yeah, so they actually embraced the sort of urban myth around the movie 2001, which I think is kind of funny. Um, but usually the the key founders of HAL are given as Satoru Iwata, who actually joined the company in uh, I want to say 1982 after he graduated from college. He was just kind of like a part-time programmer for the company before that. And the other uh, main figure in the company was Masahito Tanimura, who is the current company uh, president. So he's been with them for 35 years. And I don't know if they're still there, but they were based in Akihabara for, for a long time. I knew that. Like, that's their list. I was just double-checking it on Google, mm-hmm. but that was like their listed address even in their 81 game that they that they were based in Akihabara. Hmm. Interesting. I don't I, think so because that – been reading all the history because of uh, Iwata's passing, and uh, th- one of the reasons he became president is because they built a giant new facility in like the, around 1990, and then ran out of money. Mm. But I guess we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Was not Nakiabra. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, actually, that, that'll be a great story for later. I, I mostly focused on their games as opposed to the drama and politics and finances around the company's history, but. Um, I, I think the early years of HAL are the ones that are the least known because, again, mm. it wasn't really a formal company in the, the sense we think of today. It was 
it was a company and uh, Iwata said that his father was like really disappointed in him that he went to become a programmer with this company. Um, I'm, I'm sure that eventually changed, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, inevitably. <laughs> pretty much everything they made for the first four or five years of their existence were just clones of popular games, as was the way of computers did. back then. Yeah. But, um, okay, yeah, so in my notes it says uh, Giant Bomb and a few other sources list Eggerland Mystery as uh, for MSX as their first game. But uh, before that, they were producing all these clones. So I don't know if you guys checked out the YouTube links I sent over, but their earliest games were just like naked ripoffs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a game called Radar Rat Race, which apparently was their first game. And it is straight up Namco's Rally X, except with, uh, with mice. Uh, <laughs> but it has the same mechanics like a mouse is running through a maze, being chased by rats, and you have to collect cheese instead of flags. And occasionally there will be like a cat just kind of sitting there. And then the oil slicks or the smoke screen from Rally X is replaced by Magic Stardust. I don't know why. How whimsical. But, but as you play, there's like this kind of bad, uh, slowed down, off-key version of three blind mice playing. And it's just over again. Oh, the old that, days. How yeah. classics. Like, oh, video game music existed back then, but I wish it hadn't. <laughs> But I mean, like everything about uh, Radar Rat Maze, Rat Race, sorry, looks exactly like Rally X, except the sprites. And, you know, the fact that it's not as nice looking because uh, originally they published on VIC-20. Like, mm. I, I thought that was interesting. I, I know the uh, the Japanese computers took a while to become established, but the PC-80 was a thing by that point, wasn't it? Mm. I remember like, reading NAC that. had their own Japanese Baked and born system. I remember reading that Iwata like saved up and bought like a, a Vic Twenty or a, or a Pet or something like as his first computer, probably in the very early days before the Japanese industry, like in the late seventies as opposed to the early eighties. Maybe I really don't know when the Japanese really started developing its own like robust PC architecture, like and and market. I, sh- I should know this, but wasn't the PC eighty? Didn't it get its name because it was from 1980 or it was because it ran on an IBM 8088 chip? I honestly don't know. I don't know much about the, especially the early days of the Japanese PC. Yeah, that's that's a, an area of, of expertise that I don't know that much about and probably should have read up a little more before this episode, but I didn't expect to have this question come up. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, it does seem weird that they would, you know, focus on the VIC-20. Like, even if uh, Iwata was a fan of Commodore's early computers... Um, like I wouldn't think that there was much of a market for the VIC-20 in Japan. I, maybe I'm mistaken. People weren't thinking so much in terms of markets then also because like as, as you talked about earlier, it was sort of uh, see the pants sort of the, the line between like hobby and business was sort of uh, vague, I guess. Sure. No, I get that. But you'd think that, you know, if it's a super obscure computer that no one owns – that they would want to diversify a little bit, like maybe make some VIC-20 games because that's what they love, and then maybe also make some PC-80 games or maybe you know, for other systems. Like his university had them or something, so you Could know, be. who even knows? Could be it.
So anyway, the next game that uh, came out from <clears throat> from Hal in some form or another was called Star Battle, and it was a straight clone of Galaxia. Which, <laughs> they again, like Namco. They yeah. did. Or hated um, them. <laughs> Namco and Atari. This, their third game was Jupiter Lander, which was just Lunar Lander. <laughs> their fourth game um, was called Road Racer and is supposedly like Night Driver, but watching the videos of Road Racer... Uh, it's not that much like Night Driver. Like it's a top-down racer, but it, it's a uh, it's kind of hard to watch and and really understand. There's just clutter all over the screen, mm. and you're trying to avoid pretty much everything except dollar signs. But there's no road or anything. You're just like moving around symbols and trying to avoid them. Mm. It doesn't look that good. Like looking at their early games, you would not think, oh. This is the work of the the programming savant who would save Nintendo's bacon time and time again. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, it's, start it's definitely the yeah. tiny acorn from which a great oak grew. Mm. Anyway, so so yeah, they they produced a bunch of these kind of Vic twenty PC games, and then once the MSX launched in Japan, uh, which was the summer of nineteen eighty three, they started to transition over to the MSX, and that to me makes a lot of sense because the MSX, you know, was a home computer. Um, kind of console-ish in that it, it took cartridges and had sort of a console game sensibility to it, but still very much in the PC vein. And, um, you know, it, it was it was close enough to a console that people have actually put together homebrew conversions of their MSX games, HAL's MSX games for ColecoVision, because they ran on the same fundamental hardware. Oh. So it's, it's actually really easy to do MSX to ColecoVision conversions and vice versa. It's, it's something Coleco fans really like to do is do like uh, take, you know, MSX games that never came to Coleco and just tweak them so that they can run on the, the ColecoVision. Everybody's got a hobby. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty cool one. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really think Eggerland Mystery was um, kind of the, the company's first big big step as a publisher, as a developer. Like it was their first original game. Um and we we probably know Eggerland Mystery better as The Adventures of Lolo, which we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first Eggerland Mystery is not quite analogous to any of the Lolo games we got in the U.S. The first Lolo was sort of a uh, compilation and remix of a bunch of stages from Eggerland Mystery and its sequel. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea. And they were, they were tweaked and revised. Yeah, there's a big article on Hardcore Gaming 101 that gives the breakdown of how the Eggerland games worked, and it's it's as arcane and, and baroque as Wonder Boy. So, <laughs> so give it a read sometime when you when you have some brain space and bandwidth free to uh, to be confused a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm sure everyone here has played the Lolo games. Yeah, they mm-hmm. seem to catch on in the United States because there were three for the NES, mm-hmm. right? And then yep. there were the Game Boy ones. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I mean, it stopped there, but it seemed like there was a market for that kind of puzzle game. I, I find the, I found them incredibly hard. I still can't play them. I, my mind doesn't work that way. Yeah, there were several on um, MSX, and then on Famicom Disk System and NES. And there's kind of this, like I said, this kind of weird relationship between the U.S. and Japanese versions. Um, but I think Lolo 2 and 3 were basically the same game in the U.S. and Japan. Mm. And then Lolo became like Dark Kirby, <laughs> like Kirby's <laughs> well, enemy. Yeah, he, he had a cameo. Up. Lolo and Lala had cameos as an enemy in Kirby's Dreamland, I They're a say. boss in yeah. Dreamland. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there, was, there was a PC, like Windows 95 sequel or remake of Lolo <laughs> wow. that Hal developed. And then that was pretty much it. Like they, they showed up 
as of like 10 years ago in that Kirby cartoon coming at you or back Ugh, at you or whatever right. it's called. Right back at you. Right, Kirby, I think Kirby, they're Kirby, now Kirby, Low, Low, Low and La, La, La. Yeah, like, it's still the same character. Yeah, weird. The, the last time I thought of them was because the um, opening or one of the opening things to Super Meat Boy recreates the opening to Adventures of oh, Low, the, Low. Yeah, that's the right. Hand, yeah, yeah. The villain's hand taking away the girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a cute opening. I like that. Yeah, they, it, I... Um, had never heard of Sokoban when I first played The Adventures of Lolo and, you know, during the NES days. It was just a game I rented, and I was really impressed by it. It was, um, you know, kind of a puzzle game, but action-y also, so you needed two sets of skills. You needed to be able to think, like, in terms of the the arrangements and space within the stage, but also you needed to think in terms of timing to avoid real-time hazards, moving enemies, things that would fire if you crossed their line of sight. Um, so, you know, a lot of people were making Sokoban clones in 1985. That was, I think Sokoban <laughs> was 1982 and kind of caught on as Sokoban being like the box puzzle pushing game where you can only push boxes. You can't pull. You're moving them through a maze. Um, we could probably do an episode on, on Sokoban itself. It was called Shove It on the Genesis. <laughs> Shove It. There's it was Boxel on boxel. Game Boy. Yeah. I remember that tomato guy who was on the cartoon, the acclaimed cartoon. Quirk? Yeah. Quirk was a uh, Sokoban clone, but much better than Sokoban. Hmm. Um, I've learned a lot about Sokoban Wait. doing Game Boy World. <laughs> Where does because it... <laughs> Boxel showed up early. Uh, Boxel was a direct port of Sokoban. And then, like, every other game after that was a Sokoban clone. Does Amazing um, Tater fit into this in any way? Uh, Amazing Tater is somehow connected to Quirk and Spud's <laughs> Adventure. Man. Like, they are a trilogy. Wow. And everything after um, the first one is insanely expensive. Mm. Those are those are games that I probably will not be able to photograph for Game Boy World well, because they're like a thousand dollars. That's what, crazy. They're all from the Salad Kingdom trilogy. Actually or, or actually Atlas uh Atlas's PR guy, John Harden, dug up a copy of like oh, a yeah. boxed copy <laughs> of um Amazing Tater or Spud's Adventure, one of the two. And like tweeted to me and was like, "Hey, check out what I found!" Just to make me feel bad. But oh man, I am going to their office. I've, I've arranged this. I'm going to their office next time I'm in Ir- in Irvine and photographing that damn game. Stand behind That's, the velvet rope. I will. When you do it, <laughs> I, I don't want to accidentally fall forward and break it, yeah. like that kid did with the uh, the painting oh, at the man. museum. Anyway, um, yeah. So uh, so Lolo was actually, you know, of all the Sokoban clones, it was definitely one of the best. It really added a lot of interesting elements. So you're pushing like little boxes around, except they were called emerald emerald framers. Mm. Um, and then you had enemies within the maze. There were like these medusas who would paralyze you if you crossed their line of sight. So you had to use the boxes to obstruct their view while you were also pushing them to the proper places. It was just uh, it was really well done and really clever. the 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 original the MSX game Eggerland Mystery was pretty um, basic compared to the ones we got on NES, but the elements were still there. And it definitely, like, to me, that that shows the signs of promise of how. Like, they took this concept, but instead of just cloning Sokoban, they said, let's make it better and bigger. And they did a good job of it. So um, I could see where that would become sort of a long-running series for them. I mean, it, it ran for probably close to a decade if you count the Windows game. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's pretty good. This, this was Not back bad. when they were making, like, six or seven games a year as opposed to one or two. So... You know, getting that many games wasn't too too far out of the out of out of, out of question. Um, other games, uh, their their first licensed game was based on Golf Force. Mm. Yeah. Is that something you can tell us about? I don't really <laughs> know. Golf Force was one of those like 
1980s like movie and or OAV series. I think it's probably both, but I'm I not think sure. So, yeah. About a bunch of cute girls with guns in outer space fighting aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched one of the specials on in the back in the VHS days of anime. And yeah, it's me sort too. of. <laughs> uh, I think it's Kenichi Sonoda character designs. Okay. The riding mm-hmm. bean. Oh yeah, uh, I think that's uh, why Animago brought it over with this yeah. Sonoda connection. Uh, the character designs and the art's adorable. I see it pop up on Twitter and like Tumblr sometimes. <laughs> the show went like it was like in one ear out the other kind of thing. I just you know. I, I remember a weird yeah. thing about. Was Sorry, it was, uh, uh, like, being impregnated with an alien child that, you know, the, the the strange thing that, like, Japanese stuff can often do, which is, like, this seems incredibly superficial. Suddenly it's incredibly melodramatic and, like, kind of overly deep. What happened? <laughs> Just turned on a dime. I, I only knew it because Animego, I didn't watch actual Golf Horse, but I watched the, it was called the Super Deformed Double Feature, which was the mockumentary of Gal Force. That that uh, Animego released. It was like one of the one of the dozen VHSs at my Blockbuster, and so <laughs> it was it was about the fake making of Gal Force, where the stars of the show are the act are actresses. It's very strange. That sounds amazing. I need to watch that. That sounds mm-hmm. great. And then the other, it's it's uh, it's with a, sh- a film thing called Scramble Wars, which I totally forgot about. But it's basically the wacky races. But, yeah, that's like yeah. it's like kind of a um, like. Super Robot Wars, but as an anime, mm-hmm. right? It was like yeah. all these different characters from different series getting together. I, I've I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. It was very yeah. It was a weird. I don't know why my blockbuster had that VHS. I have to say, man, that 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 sort of golden age of Japanese OAVs where they were in the bubble economy where they were just like, <laughs> just throw some money. Who cares? <laughs> just make it big and look beautiful. I, I miss that era. It was just like everything was so off the wall, mm-hmm. as opposed to so formulaic and safe. Ah, the 80s. Anyway, so yeah, they made a top-down shooter based on Golf Force, which really has nothing whatsoever to do with Golf Force, except that at the beginning of the game, you can pick one of the two heroines, which is a little portrait on the title screen that you scroll through, and then after that, it's just like ships in space blowing up stuff. Not that great, but it is kind of cool that they you know jumped into the licensing at that point. Like That, to me, is a sign that they were kind of serious as a, as a company. Or they were a bunch of nerds who watched a lot of anime. That's also entirely possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it could be another both. another notable, a couple of notable MSX games um, that ended up sort of determining their future for the uh, their direction for the future. Hole in One, which was a golf game, and um, I want to say that they co-developed a couple of NES golf games, didn't they? Didn't well, they? yeah, that's something. Uh, really... Yeah, that's um, Open Tournament Golf. Was that it? Yes. Yeah, they did the yeah they did the Mario the yeah. NES Open Tournament Golf yeah that was them which for Mario nerds uh, that is the first coupling of Luigi and Daisy that was the first time they'd been put together well, as a well. pair which so <laughs> if your head canon is that Luigi and Daisy are a couple that's where it begins yes, it's what the movie tells me and that's my that's where my <laughs> canon comes from uh, there's something I know you're going to talk about this later I'm looking at the notes but. One of the most significant things is is even while this was going on, they were already working with Nintendo from very early on. So, I mean, I, I don't know if we're, we're – it sort of looks like we're going from that, – that's, that's coming up soon. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get there. But, yeah, this is all happening at the same time. Right, yeah. So um, 
Also in 1984, so I guess before Eggerland Mystery, they produced a game called Rollerball, which sounds like it might have something to do with the sport of the future, but actually was a pinball game. <laughs> mm, and okay. that was kind of uh, Hal's entree into pinball, which is something that they revisited a few times. And their pinball games were always just top notch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially um, Kirby's Pinball Land. Kimber- what a Kirby's great Pinball Land idea. was really lo- beloved, but. I was more of a Revenge of the Gator guy. Yeah. Revenge of the Gator was uh, another one. Like, that was one of the first really great. Game Boy games. You can it was, get that for it like was just $2 so well on done. the eShop now. Yeah, it's, totally it's super cheap. It. Yeah. Um, but it's it's definitely, I mean, even though it just has one board, it's a really, or one table, it's a really good pinball game. Mm-hmm. Um, having played some subsequent Game Boy pinball games by other developers, <laughs> like you don't really love what you got until it's gone. Like, <laughs> playing something like, um, what, what developer was that? Jalico's uh, Hero Should Go Pinball Party which is just this janky piece of pinball garbage. It's terrible. <laughs> That's no it's party. Like the physics are awful. The collisions are bad. It's not fun. It's not interesting. It's not attractive. Uh, Revenge of the Gator was just Hal kind of doing its Hal thing, which was taking that idea, doing like a really compact version of it, and just making it so good. Like the the movement of the ball and the way it interacts with the, the table and the bumpers and the flippers – is just fantastic. Like I can't say enough good things about Revenge of the Gator, which might seem kind of weird because it's just a portable <laughs> pinball game from 1989, but it was just really well done. They're good at pinball. They're yeah, good at I mean, replicating pinball physics. Like to me, it's just, you know, kind of hell in a nutshell. Like it's this simple thing that you wouldn't think would be that big a deal, but they do it so well. And that kind of love and care is what makes Hal a really great developer. So yeah, as Christian mentioned, around this time, uh, around the time of Rollerball and Eggerland Mystery, Hal, and specifically Satoru Iwata, uh, was tapped by Nintendo to just kind of come on and do some programming help for them. And I don't know, I've never seen an explanation of how Nintendo knew, like, oh, we should get in touch with Iwata. Uh, Has has that ever been explained? I've I've looked and I I can't... I don't think so. I... Yeah, I would just assume it was they just knew in turn, like it oh. was just to talk among people. Oh. I'm going to say that I read this recently. Again, I didn't note it down. So I've been reading this book, I Am Error, about the history of the, the NES. Oh, we've read it. Okay. <laughs> no, just... Well, okay, so you yeah, know from reading that that like it's, it has 6502 processor. Mm-hmm. Um, the 6502 was pretty unpopular in Japan. My guess slash thing I think I feel like I read is that uh, Iwata knew how to program for the 6502. That would do it. Uh, they were looking for people who could. Also, Commodore used 6502s, so it just logically okay. makes sense that even if I'm wrong, I'm going to make this up and say maybe that was why. No, like, that makes perfect sense. Um, the 6502 was a um, was an established processor, but not one that people used a lot. Established in more in the West, not so much in Japan. Mm-hmm. Is really the, it was really the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so okay, that makes sense. I mean, they probably put out like an APB saying, help. We need 6502 experts, and Iwata said... That's how they said, got the... the um, Nakago, the guy who programmed Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, hmm. also. 
and uh, the Donkey yeah. Kong port. There's a poster. It said Uncle Yamauchi wants you. Yeah, he to was, join. He his. was working on like business. <laughs> Toshihiko Nakago. Yeah, Nakago. He was a uh, he was working on, like business software or something, but he hmm. knew how to do 6502. So Nintendo was just scouting people who knew how to program Japanese people who knew how to program the 6502 because it was a rare skill mm-hmm. in Japan. So that would explain it. So Iwata knew, knew. knew what he needed to do, and Nintendo. Uh, brought him on to help out with a couple of games. And balloon fight being the significant. The first, one. yeah, the first one he brought on. They brought on was um, was for Balloon Fight, and it wasn't for the NES version, the Famicom version. Yeah, it was. It was the no, it was the arcade version. Reverse. No, I thought so too, but it's not. It was huh? the Ooh. the Famicom version was great, and they brought him on to make the VS version, the arcade version, better. I swear, I just read the opposite thing though. I thought so too, but I've read it a couple of times over the past month or so. Maybe it's because. I mean, maybe I did read it that way. Maybe it wasn't accurate. You know what I mean? Like, what I read. One or the other. Like, to me, it would make more sense that the VS version was the better version. But because it was running on a different, you know, like, more robust hardware. But I think the VS version was made after the Famicom version. So it might make sense. I was just reading the Iwata Asks uh, about the history of Super Mario Brothers. And regardless of which version, like, which way it went down, I remember the big point of um, fact was that, like, Iwata had thought of a way to do the programming for the motion better. Mm-hmm. Are you gonna, were you going to tell this story? Uh, well, actually, I was going to say that for the Super Mario Brothers episode. But oh. we, can, we can repeat ourselves. It's fine. Uh, Go ahead. He, uh, we'll tell it differently. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And he had thought of a way to do it with, you know, with, without integers. He was using decimals. So, like, it was smoother gradations of, of movement. And he told Nakago about it. And Nakago was like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. And that's how they, they right. ended up using it for Mario Swimming. Oh, I didn't yeah, know Mario that. Swimming is based on Balloon Fight's motion. And oh, that's that makes something sense. that Iwata introduced. Nice. Oh, that's like the missing link in my head. Just like connect mm-hmm. together like, whoa. So, yeah, he worked on making one version of Balloon Fight. I want to say the Versus arcade version as good as the other version, uh, which the, the team was having trouble with. Uh, to which Shigeru Miyamoto afterwards said, like, why did you guys have to call in outside help to make this happen? That doesn't make hmm. sense. But what, in, in any case, I think he made a good impression. He also helped out with um, Nintendo's pinball. Mm. But as far as I can tell, Iwata had not worked on rollerball. So it wasn't like they brought him on because they said, oh, you know pinball games because you made a pinball game. It was... I remember no, not no connection to pinball all that much anyway. It's actually not that bad. I mean, I, I, for, I like, for its I like time, okay. it was a very good pinball game. I mean, I got it like with my system in 1986. Yeah, so see, I don't think I played any as pinball to like 89 or 90. And so maybe yeah, it just felt very, super dated. Were you in the when you, were you in the UK? No, <laughs> no, I just I didn't I didn't get an NES until like 88 or something when I was like six or seven and saw my next door neighbor playing uh, Super Mario Brothers. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to keep keep in mind that NES pinball was released in early 1985 in Japan. Mm. So Super Mario Brothers wasn't out at that point. So those simple kind of arcade experiences were they were they were okay. It wasn't until Super Mario Brothers came out that people were like. Whoa, the system's capable of a lot. Let's work to this higher standard. But, yeah. you know, we got Super Mario Brothers at NES launch. So all those black box games were kind of like, mm, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. I think it was also an all-hands-on-deck thing at the time, both in terms of why they had Iwata there, but also why they were pumping out things like pinball and whatever. They were like, okay, we have this system. We have to get as many games out like as fast as yeah, possible. Yeah, licensees didn't start showing up until uh, a year after the NES or the Famicom's launch. So Nintendo was totally on its own for a while, kind of mm. like with Wii U. Um, <laughs> so it's been longer than a year. But. And also it was people they had relationships with even then. Like the first licensee was Hudson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nintendo and Hudson had a close relationship at that point. Yeah. So. And those first licensed games were not good. Nuts and milk. 
<laughs> the most popular ROM hack ever. <laughs> <laughs> they did well for themselves, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that was kind of the beginning of the Iwata-Nintendo connection, which eventually would obviously bear incredible fruit uh, as Iwata became the company president uh, mm-hmm. at Nintendo, the first uh, person outside of the Yamauchi family to run the company. So, you know, uh, that, that's a pretty big deal. Um, oh, before we leave Balloon Fight real quick, I did think it was very touching that – uh, it was, Hip Tanaka made the made the remix for Iwata like as a tribute to him after he passed away. That was great. Yeah, that we put amazing. that in, we put that in the episode um, that we, oh, yeah, that we was, talked about. Yeah, I love passing. that. Yeah, it was it was a nice it was a nice little little tribute. We last last we spoke before our little break, we talked about um, sort of Hal's introduction to Nintendo, and um, they continued making MSX games for a few years. As that market slowly tapered away, they shifted over to Famicom development, which I don't think had anything to do with their relationship with Nintendo. It was just what everyone did. Mm-hmm. If you were a Japanese game developer, you made Famicom games. That's what you did. Did they ever officially become like a second or first party developer for Nintendo, or were they always technically a separate company? I actually don't know. Um, I, I don't know if Nintendo has a stake in them. Yeah, but for whatever reason, like they became Nintendo exclusive once they stopped making for games for MSX. Like the only game they made that was not for a Nintendo platform was that Lolo port for Windows ninety five. Mm. Everything else was Nintendo. Yeah, I wondered if they're just like Game Freak, where Game Freak, like they actually did just put out a game with Sega of all people, but pretty much they're a Nintendo uh, exclusive company. Yeah, I I think it's just one of those like the relationship was so strong that there was never there's never been any question of like yes we make Nintendo games that's what mm-hmm. we do, um, and I I'm assuming Nintendo has a stake in like Kirby. Like, surely Nintendo has some yeah, ownership over the character. I have to think they own Kirby, yeah. You'd, you'd, you'd imagine. So, yeah, so I don't know exactly what the rights issues there are. It's or... actually hard to tra- – I was very s- slightly trying to track this down around when Iwata died because I was curious about it. And even, like, looking at, like, Hal's Japanese website, trying to figure out who owns Hal or whatever, or like, Nintendo's financial stuff, it's not really t- trivial – task <laughs> you would think that if they had actually made you know made a purchase bought a stake in Hal, that would be a matter of public record because they are a publicly traded company yeah so that leads me to like the fact that we've never heard anything along those lines leads me to believe that it's just a partnership and you know like a gentleman's agreement or maybe yeah. even a contractual agreement to me like it's Nintendo like, um... helps fund Hal uh, games but I, I don't know like all Hal makes anymore are basically you know, first party Nintendo games. Kirby. Um, I don't think they've worked on Smash Brothers in a while, but yeah. no, yeah, that was a Sora thing uh, since for the last decade or so. I find it all confusing. Like 
uh, Game Freak, uh, Creatures Inc., and the Pokemon Company, and then Nintendo. Like, <laughs> well, we, we talk someone about draw me a chart. We'll talk about creatures in a little bit. Okay, cool. I'm glad. Um, yeah. So, so like I said, it made sense that Hal began to focus on the Famicom. Uh, I find it interesting that some of their first NES games were NES games, not Famicom games. As far as I know, their ports of Defender 2, Joust, and Millipede weren't released in Japan, were they? I don't know. I think they were American only. Things American I would not only. really be worried about in my life would be like <laughs> Japanese Famicom ports of, of, of classic Atari games and whatever. Yeah, but it is interesting that they would be tapped for creating those games. And apparently their their version of Defender 2 is supposedly really good. And there is a little bit of a weird irony in them porting Joust, given that they, given that Iwata worked on Balloon Fight, which is the best which is ripoff, of like <laughs> yeah, a glorious ripoff of of Joust. Um, so yeah, just kind of like a, an odd little footnote. But most of what they were known for on NES and Famicom were their original games. Uh, some of them were really weird, like Kabuki Quantum Fighter, mm. which is oh, a, yeah. an action platformer in that sort of uh, what Frank Cifaldi calls guy game genre like Shatterhand and Vice Project Doom, where you're like a dude and you're fighting things <laughs> and a platformer and it's kind of melee, kind of a shooter. Yeah. It's very action-y, kind of hardcore. Only you're a dude with beautiful hair that uses a weapon, right? You you are a computer scientist there named <laughs> Scott something. I can't remember. You're like a, a computer scientist in the military who is converted into a computer program to fight viruses by hand not with, with, you know, like uh, with McAfee or whatever. Um, and for whatever reason, the the astral form you take inside of the computer is of a kabuki dancer who has deadly long red hair. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. I It's, it's just like one of those throw everything into a melting <laughs> pot and see what happens kind of game <laughs> concepts that, that just doesn't happen now. I mean, if it does, it's like people consciously trying to be weird in that NES way, whereas this just came by naturally. I have a feeling it also probably was one of those things where, like, okay, we have this Famicom game. It has a Kabuki guy. How do we make this relatable for today's American kids? Like, Little Billy, the same way that they took, like, you know, MetaFight and said, like, Little Billy is, whatever his name is, is chasing his frog down into a pit. Oh, look, there's the Sophia, too, and now it's Jason, Blaster. Jason chasing Fred. You know, like, <laughs> that's not how MetaFight starts in the Japanese version. Jason right. is a very 80s white <laughs> Little boy name, yeah. It, I know. Yeah, we went from like Chu Senki Metavito to I'm Jason chasing my frog Fred down the nuclear hole in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, wait, maybe your parents should cover that up. My God, can you so, defeat Chris, the <laughs> ultimate villain? <laughs> uh, what was the villain's name in? Uh, Sophia was the car. Sophia the third was the name of the AI in the tank. I think the tank was called Nora. Nora. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, no obligations, responsibility, or adults, or whatever. Um, and then, what was his name? Like the mutant boss, or something? Or the I can't remember. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's all a digression. But yeah, <laughs> but it was very much in that style. Yeah, I, I think the the same the game had that same style in Japan, though. Um, I I don't know, and it's possible. Like Kabuki dancer meets innards of computer. Yeah. Then again, I could I I can imagine them thinking that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> So who knows? But that was that was a HAL game, uh, probably their most atypical game uh, in, in their entire catalog. Then again, um, Hal, HAL's catalog is pretty atypical. That's true. Their yeah, NES catalog, yeah, I mean, Daydreamin' Davey. That was a HAL game, damn. That was a HAL game. Air Fortress, which 
I really need to play. Like people keep telling me it's a really great mix of Metroid, Blaster Master, kind of got a Baraduk thing. Like you're a dude on like a hover bike that you use to fly through shooter stages and then you land it and you go inside of enemy bases on foot and like drop a bomb and then have to escape. So kind of almost like a Wario Land 4 thing where you're like blowing up a base and you have to escape each time. Hmm. Um, so so pretty ambitious, kind of nonlinear levels. Uh, what I've seen of it, you know, people playing it, video streams of it, seems interesting. So they were definitely kind of getting into that nonlinear adventure game style that was kind of getting popular in Famicom NES at the, the latter half of the 80s. Um, Revenge of the Gator, I mentioned. The Lolo trilogy, um, we talked about a little bit, but that really kind of came into its own on NES and Famicom, uh, Famicom Disk System, uh, and received a few sequels here. Lolo 3 is actually really hard to come by these days, kind of an expensive game. Mm. Um, but it looks really good. Like, they they made a really beautiful Sokoban clone. It's, I think uh, that game had bosses in it, too, like boss fights that I looked really so. cool. Which isn't totally, totally wacky. I've, I've played... Um, Boomer's Adventure in Asmic World, which is kind of a, a Heiankyo alien loadrunner trap em up style game that also has bosses. They don't mm. work very well. I'm sure Lolo's worked a lot better. Um, we talked a little bit in the break about Vegas, Dra- Dra- Vegas Dreams and Vegas Stakes, mm-hmm. which uh, apparently mm-hmm. is very popular among the older Japanese set. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I had mentioned, like, the first time I went to Tokyo on an ANA flight, instead of having like, you know, crappy flash games or whatever, they still had SNES games in the, oh, in wow. the, in the back in this like, entertainment console. And I watched like a middle aged Japanese guy play like SNES Vegas Stakes in the seat next to me for like a <laughs> I, whole flight. I love Vegas Stakes <laughs> because you can use the mouse. It's like one of like five Super <laughs> Nintendo games, but yeah. also like it adds this extra layer to the gambling experience in that you set off with your friends or like you choose a friend who like talks to you throughout gambling. And then occasionally like people will come up to you like, oh, I can't, I, I need $50 to do something. And you give it to them and either they ripped you off or you are eventually rewarded later. Like there are mm. like these weird like little narrative things that interrupt the gambling and that I find that I find pretty fascinating. So to me, I, I don't know this for a fact, but to me the Vegas games that Hal developed strike me as sort of a a facelift for the patchy slot genre that was kind of weirdly popular on Japanese consoles. You had games like um God, I can't even remember what they're called, but you know, Pachinko slot machine games, um where basically all you do is like hold down a button and tweak the direction that the the balls fly in. It's not very fun, but those are just ubiquitous or mm-hmm. yes, ubiquitous on uh, on Japanese consoles. And after a while, they started to add like Coconuts Japan and some other developers started to add these kind of adventure game RPG light elements where there would be like a story and you'd be wandering around from different pachinko parlors to other pachinko parlors. Vegas Dreams, Vegas Stakes strikes me as being very much in that vein, except that instead of limiting themselves to the Japanese market, because no one outside of Japan cares about pachinko or patchy slot, they said, well, everyone loves Vegas. Like, everyone loves to gamble, you know, Monte Carlo, (laughs) Vegas-style gambling. So if we take the same concept and build it around Vegas concepts instead of just pachinko, then we can sell not only to Japanese gamers, but also to American gamers. And I think that was a pretty smart choice on their part. It, it, it definitely, um, to my knowledge, there's not really anything comparable um, on the on the NES library. It's interesting to well, didn't didn't Nintendo is in the NES days like weren't they afraid of anything resembling gambling or they were 
really I thought they were not the biggest fans of gambling in their in their games. Hmm. Well, they sure publish these games that is or true. allow these games to be licensed. I remember yeah. just like Mario 2 has gambling. <laughs> you know, just like yeah. gambling yeah, slot and slot machine. machines are such a like a part of all like a lot of Japanese games. There's always like a gambling element. Yeah, it's true. They do love gambling. It's fun. Well, I love gambling too. <laughs> I also read that the Vegas in Japan it's just called Viva Las Vegas, the Vegas Dreams. But then Wayne Newton was going to sue, right? That's, a, that's that, an Elvis song. Yeah, oh, Elvis. oh, sorry. I think I think he he wore it best though. <laughs> <laughs> what about Juice Newton? Juice Newton. Mm-hmm. I like the that one. That sounds dangerous. Uh, I like the uh, Dead Kennedys one. I like that one. Or is yeah. it just Jello Biafra that sings it? It's Dead Kennedys. Okay. Mm. Maybe they did the commercial. In the <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. so the uh, the final noteworthy game of the uh, of Hal's eight bit output, of course, is the Kirby series, which uh, began on Game Boy but quickly exploded onto other systems. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably uh, the, the best-known game of the 8-bit era in that series was Kirby's Adventure for NES, which really sort of uh, consolidated all the concepts of the series. Yeah. The, the original Kirby was very simplistic. I'll let you guys talk about it. Well, yeah, I, uh, funny story with Kirby's Adventure is that, and actually I was, I was on a flight to Las Vegas when I learned about uh, the passing of Satoru Iwata, and the closest thing I had to an Iwata game available to me at the time was the uh, 3D Classics version of Kirby Adventure, and it still really holds up. I, I think that is the first one where you where you steal powers because you don't steal abilities in the original Kirby Dreamland. No. I think in Kirby's Dreamland Two you, you do, do, but that might have come out after I Kirby's think it Adventure. Did. Yeah, it did. It did. But the nicest thing I can say about this game is it got me to play a Nintendo game in 1993 and not care that it wasn't a 16-bit game. Like mm-hmm. I love yeah. this game. Oh, it looked really good. It did. It, it, it looks beautiful. Like reading that I am error book, I, I'm like, what magic did they did they <laughs> what magic spell did they cast to make Kirby's yeah. Adventure I mean, happen? The graphics are very simple, but they're just very well developed. Animation's um, great. Yeah, yeah, the animation's great. The color choices and the definition around objects. Like, everything is just really kind of pushing... I don't, I don't want to say pushing the limitations of 8-bit, but using the limitations of 8-bit in really smart ways. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily working around them, but working with them to make just a beautiful, cartoon-looking game. That plays really well. Feels yeah, it really does. Good. Yeah, still it's still does. my favorite of the series, I think. I like... I like uh, Superstar Ultra, or yeah, the, yeah. Superstar the, was their like again another melting the pot. Just yeah, do everything. One. Just yeah. do everything. Their 1997 Super Nintendo release, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? Wasn't it that late? It was like 96 Kirby's or 97. Always last yeah, on yeah. every yeah. system. I actually it was funny. I, I mentioned this earlier, I think, but like, uh, I I didn't play Kirby on the NES. I didn't play Kirby on the SNES because they're always so late. But then, like when the N sixty four came out, I was definitely, definitely done with the N sixty four by the time Kirby sixty four <laughs> well, came 2000 out. Two thousand or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, like, was late. but I was like, you know what? I'm tired of always missing Kirby. I'm gonna buy Kirby sixty four, and it was the last like new N sixty four game I ever bought. Mm. And I, I really loved um, the GDC two thousand or twenty eleven speech uh, that Iwata gave, and he. In it, he talked about you know localizing Kirby and originally calling him Tinkle Popo and <laughs> Tinkle realizing Popo, that Jesus. wouldn't that wouldn't sell outside of Japan. So yeah, yeah, I remember Miyamoto actually like gave direct feedback if I recall correctly on how they were going to take like the Kirby concept that they'd come up with how but make it palatable because it was a Nintendo published game. So I guess they this is maybe where they got to start to get really close to Nintendo where Nintendo was like no we want to give you direct feedback on like how the direction you creatively should take your games. Mm-hmm. And and it was created by Masahiro Sakurai, right? He's the creative creator, and he went. He, he did some things later. An important fact well about known. him: he's immortal. 
right? <laughs> is he? I mean, look at the guy. Well, oh, yeah. he never ages, but he also, based on his descriptions, is in constant chronic pain. It's oh, like, <laughs> that'll happen, I guess. That's true. Yeah. So I, he, I think he played too much Kid Icarus Uprising. Oh, snap. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, everybody. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> that, that, that nerve is still that raw, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so there is that kind of weird relationship between HAL and Nintendo with the Kirby games. Like, Kirby definitely is a first-party property. Like mm-hmm. You'll never see Kirby on another platform. But HAL's the only developer who's ever made a Kirby game, to Not my knowledge. Feel, oh, wait. Feel Plus or whatever? No, 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 no. Oh, Good that's feel. right. Good Feel, yeah, sorry. Good Kirby's, feel. Kirby's epic yarn. Well, they yeah. shop them out, or they'll do... I still think HAL is, like, the godfather of it. They'll oh, yeah, watch no. over it. But, yeah, it's... I'm, I mean, sure, besides like Kirby's a, Epic Yarn, who Squeak else? Squeak Squad was developed by an outside developer, I think. Oh yeah, also, one of them was by the um, by the the Minish Cap and flagship. Uh, yeah, flagship. Okamoto's. That was oh, the, the, that's right. the, yeah, the, the the terrible labyrinth or the cell phone garbage. What is mirror? Yeah, amazing mirror. Amazing mirror. Cell phone garbage. What's happening? <laughs> no, <laughs> you, there's you can you call yeah, other players. You that, call it, was, it was a really ambitious uh, okay. idea, but the, the tech wasn't there. It's for a broken. It. It's like a Kirby Metroidvania, and it's not very good. But it's like a, it's like one of those interesting attempts to make something weird mm. and interesting. Yeah, the 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 weird thing about that one is that they wanted it to be like four person multiplayer, but this was on Game Boy Advance, so you had to connect to other people to play this big nonlinear adventure. It's a game that would work probably pretty well on a 3DS. Yeah. Where you have the connectivity, mm-hmm. or you could even get like ghost data of other people playing the game or something, but instead it was like, eh, yeah, it just didn't work, and um, so you'd have like AI dudes running around instead of instead of other players, and mm. they screw you you up sometimes. You uh, there were places where you had to go from one level to another while carrying a certain power and able to be or in order to be able to advance. Just a lot of ideas that didn't quite come together, but you know that's that's why Hal should just make all the Kirby games. No, no, because Epic Yarn is like oh, one that's of the true. Best Kirby games. Uh, well, it is really good. I also I looked into this just a second ago because uh, one of my favorite underrated Kirby games was uh, Kirby's Block Ball, their breakout clone, which also goes back to Hal's history of making clones and stuff. It, it was a uh, 95 game, well, actually 96 in America Game Boy game. Whoa. But it's, uh, I, I just looked that up, that it was really an R&D 1 game that then Hal told them, like, no, Kirby moves like this, so they hmm. they reworked uh, an R&D 1 game for well, it. That's not the only time Kirby was kind of grafted onto something else. There was also <laughs> Kirby's Avalanche, which was a Puyo Puyo game. Oh, oh yeah. That's right. Yeah, I that's forgot right. about that. So I guess that was probably developed by Compile, and then yeah, it tweaked. was. It's actually the Super Famicom Puyo Puyo game, just, mm. just graphic. And so there's and the, uh, of course, Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine is the right. Genesis mm. version. I prefer, yeah, I prefer to look at Kirby than the <laughs> ugly American Saturday morning version of Robotnik. I'm pretty sure Kirby's Kirby's Dream Course was not a Kirby game to begin with either. Like it started just as a uh, regular mini golf game, but then they Did decided it? to add powers and stuff. Yeah, so I mean that that was for the best, really. That game. Yeah, I mean awesome. that's such a oh, weird but great game. I, I played that for the first time on Virtual Console. And great music. Was too. really surprised by how interesting and good it is. Sounds like Kirby almost becomes like a virus for HAL games <laughs> that he just takes over everything. Kind of. If I mean, at yeah. this point, they have more of a system in place for Kirby. Um, I talked to them. Talked to some folks at Kirby or at, at Hal Kirby um, when the last Kirby game came out for 3DS last year. What was that called? Triple, triple Deluxe. Yeah, yeah, it's Triple Deluxe. And I said, you know, like, what's the what's the story with all the the, the games? Like, it seems like there's classic Kirby games and then there's weird Kirby games. And they said, well, yeah, that's actually the system we have. Um, it's like an alternating cycle. We make a traditional Kirby game that people can play and be comfortable with. And then the next year or the next time we make a game that's outlandish and experimental 
you know, something like Mass Attack or um, Rainbow Curse or whatever, where it's, it's you know, trying out new ideas and new mechanics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't like that, that's okay because next time we'll make a more traditional Kirby game. And actually, I would say they've been on a streak of, of that's been working out for them yeah, for yeah, a while now. I, I don't so. know if we're going to transition to this new Kirby cast. <laughs> we already I, have, a, I have strong feelings about the Kirby games lately. They're pretty good. If you want to hear more, we did one in the One Up run, so that's probably from 2011, I think. A Kirby episode? Yeah. I don't even remember. Yeah, back that. at One Up. Wow. But you couldn't even talk about that Wii U Rainbow Curse sequel. Man. Yeah, or um, Return to Dreamland. That's great. Yeah, that just that just hit Virtual Console, and I ignored it in 2012. Return to Dreamland is extremely yeah, good. Yeah, it's super I, good. I, overlooked. I played it and reviewed it. And that's the only reason I had really knew anything about it, but it was so much better than I expected. I co-op the whole thing with Fran. Like we just kind of got it. Co-op like, is great in that game. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I love the fun. co-op hugs. Those are my favorite. <laughs> yes. yes, Kirby. And Kirby that's something hugs. that's been around since the Super NES era. There was a, yeah. a forum thread I saw recently where they were trying to figure out exactly what Kirby does to people when he hugs them. I thought he's like feeding them like a bird. I, yeah, yeah, like I thought it was <laughs> that was to mouth that, that's exactly yeah. what some people said. They I were like a kiss. He's like, like he's like kiss. chewing up food and he, like he gets food and he chews it up and then he puts it into their mouths like a bit, like a mama bird but That's it's what, like a kiss or yeah. a hug. It's very strange. Yeah. It it looks much I think it looks most like a kiss in the Superstar uh the the 16 games one. Mm, yeah. I don't think we know about Kirby's biology enough <laughs> to, to, to theorize about it's, what's happening. It's we, very it's very fluid. We only just learned about toad biology, so Kirby's the next step. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but Kirby is a really interesting series, though, because it's so pastel, pastel, and so soft and gentle and kind of effeminate. But sometimes it's it's kind of intense. There's a lot of there's depth. a lot of darkness to it. There's darkness, and I think that the Kirby franchise is the is most typifies in a lot of ways the like if you just want to run through the game and like you don't even have to be like almost not even present. You can sort of make it to the end if you're co-oping or whatever. Yeah. But if you want to get all of the, like, the secrets, like, you know, in the Mario series has really embraced this now, too, with, like, you know, 3D World had stamps and stars and stuff, like, off-the-beaten-track stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, the Kirby series really instituted this, like, off-the-beaten-track is challenging, like, main road is not so challenging. And, yep. And it's, uh, I like it a lot because I think if you play a Kirby game as, like, a person who plays video games, you should definitely be going for all the extras. Yeah. I, well, I also think... Like, because Sakurai is so involved with the series, that's why so many of them have like a potpourri of extras and so many extra modes and collectibles yeah. and junk. Like Mass, yeah, Mass Attack has um, an RPG, like a Dragon Quest style RPG you can unlock with I Kirby. Need to, I need to play that one. That's, that's one awesome. That game is amazing. I, hear I heard good things about it. Yeah, I haven't played yeah, it. It's good. But Triple Deluxe had like a hundred keychains that you yes. could find and collect, and a fighting game mode that's yeah. actually really good, and yeah. then got split off as its own downloadable game. And that's a also really game good. That's okay. Yeah. The, the fighting game was actually really I love the fight. The fighting game just is a Smash Brothers. Like, it's a great it is. mini Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, that's uh, there's more to there's more to Hal than Kirby though. So kind of looking at, at the way the the company developed in the 16-bit era, they produced fewer games, but they were still kind of all over the place. They worked on the as the developer on the in, uh, Super NES version of SimCity, which Bob Ooh. recently tackled on a 
micro episode. That was once a Famicom game. I wonder if they were on board for that version too. It started as a Famicom game. Did it? And yeah. Then, and then they didn't publish that version. They just moved it to Super. Yeah. I, I was reading an interview with the composer, and she said like her her compositions were practically the same between the Famicom and Super Famicom versions. Hmm. So yeah. interesting. Well, that explains probably why it came out so early in the SNES life. Yeah. Because it was kind of a, a sort of a conversion s- surprise. Right. Yeah. It was the eco of its day. <laughs> Um, yeah, another another game that is a kind of a personal favorite. It was one of the first, actually, I think it was the first Dun- no, it was an early dungeon crawler for me, uh, Arcana, mm, yeah, which is um, a really um, kind of a short, compact dungeon crawler compared to something you know like Wizardry or Etrian Odyssey. Yeah, there's not much to it, but it's got a really interesting style to it. Everything is based, as you might guess by the name, on tarot. And, like, everything, enemies, skills, your characters are all tarot cards. And uh, they all have kind of their own values. And you use cards in battle as, as special items. And when someone's defeated, their card gets torn. And you're traveling through a maze. It's just a really kind of fun visual uh, conceit, I guess, to sort of spice up uh, an otherwise sort of staid and boring genre. It was an early Super NES game. And... Um, yeah, definitely one that kind of sticks in my memory as being a lot of fun. I think back then the tarot card motif was not used in every RPG like it no. is today. Like I mean, every Ultima, RPG. Ultima 4 kind of introduced it. That's true, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you didn't really see it a lot in, in Japanese games. That, that kind of became, that kind of came into vogue with the Ogre series. Yeah, mm-hmm. they ran with it. I remember getting that game. For some reason, I got fixated on that game. I guess it's just like the way I was at that age, right? You Arcana? Know? Yeah, I just like decided I wanted it and bought it and then like just played it and was just, I don't know. It was like I actually was kind of mistrustful of HAL or something. I guess I feel like <laughs> if I think back, I didn't know. I never really bought a HAL game before, but yeah. Oh yeah, I wanted to mention. I looked it up on my phone. Um, I just I had this GamePro like book of hints or whatever, and HAL is an ad in the back. It's just their logo, and apparently their their catchphrase or tagline or whatever for that era was the fanatic specialist. F U N attic. So they had their own. Is that like a tagline? I guess. <laughs> Or like catchphrase slogan. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. So they were advertising and stuff back then. It was I don't know, kind of cool. Yeah, Arcana. I never bought Arcana, but I rented it and beat it in like a weekend. So it was not a very big RPG, but it was it was fun and really accessible. I mean, I was kind of an idiot at RPGs at that point. So the fact that I made it through on a rental. Are we talking uh, about the SNES era now? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, They really didn't make that many SNES games. A lot of them were Kirby, uh, but probably the most important thing. for a lot of people that Hal worked on in the Super NES era was Earthbound. I yeah, hate that sure. game. I know Bob hates it, but the rest <laughs> of us like it. aren't so aren't so distrustful of, of Earthbound. <laughs> what is this? A non-medieval RPG? Get that off. Get out, get it out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, actually, Hal had worked on the first uh, Mother game also as a co-developer, um, and then they worked together with Ape on Earthbound uh, Mother Two. And apparently that game had a really tortuous uh, development cycle and just took forever and wasn't coming together. And Satoru Iwata stepped in and spent like six months or a year Mm -hmm. basically single-handedly salvaging the mechanics and everything of that game and brought it together to become a a true RPG classic. But um, it it is really interesting because it's it's, uh, just another one of those instances of Iwata stepping in and saying... All right, guys, I got it. I'm good. There's and, a there's uh, a guy named oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. There's a guy named Tomato on the internet. I think his name is Clyde, Clyde Mandolin. Mandolin. Yeah, he's great. Uh, like he's publishing books on localization and stuff like that. Please check him out. But um, 
he he has taken apart like Earthbound and stuff like that, and looked at the programming, and and he says like it's so ingenious. Like, well, he did the fan translation for Mother Three. Yeah, yeah. So he knows a lot about that kind of stuff. But he's like just down to like pathfinding, like how the pizza man finds you in the town is like pretty pretty advanced, like pretty advanced programming for a Super Nintendo game. So look up that stuff. Hopefully, I can give Jeremy a link to that before mm-hmm. the episode goes live. But um, it, it it's impressive stuff in this game. Well, so was Hal involved? Hal involved with Mother Three? Was that all just Brownie Brown? Um. Okay. So Mother. 3, no. But Hal did work on Earthbound 64. Mother 64. Yeah, that's okay. But even even Iwata couldn't save that one. <laughs> Actually, there's a fascinating interview on one of the fan sites for Mother that they they, tra- they, they did a big interview. Itoi, Iwata, and um, Miyamoto well, when Mother 3 oh, was yeah, canceled. I, bet, yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the N64 oh, version that. of Mother. Great, yeah. yeah, and that has stuff about it's interesting to read stuff from Iwata, like, from before he was the president of Nintendo also, because his way of, his, like, you know, his role and his demeanor and stuff is, is different as well. That was sort of when Nintendo had sort of roped him in and was having him help a lot with Nintendo, and actually that's part of They what, were grooming him? Yeah. Well, yeah, he was like a, a VP. Uh, he was an executive, um, um, a mid-level executive of some sort for a couple of years before he became the president, right? He was, like, a programming director or something. He, uh, I can't remember exactly what his title was, but he... Uh, he became the president of HAL. Um, to save the company. Right? Yeah. So there's there's a lot. I guess there's a lot to talk about if you want to talk about. Like, I don't know how much you covered in the Iwata cast or whatever it ended up being. But oh, It was very um, brief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was more like a, oh, wow, that he happened. was a big guy. Um, <laughs> wow. The only other SNES game I wanted to talk about really quickly from HAL that I liked a lot if we're going to transition over to talking more about the company uh, was was Hyperzone? Did anybody else play Hyperzone? Mm-mm. I didn't. Uh, it's totally Mode Seven, right? Like it Mode is, Seven based uh, kind yeah, of shootery it, game. I think basically, and I don't know what the design for it was, but I think they said they looked at F Zero, like probably pre-release F Zero, maybe even literally, like we're at Nintendo looking at F Zero because of their close relationship, and said like, let's do this, but make it a shooter in the like you know like a uh, Space Harrier vein. So it's like a crossbreed between like Space Harrier and, and F Zero, but it. It's. I got very addicted to it earlier this year. It's very hard, hmm. but also very short, and um, it's just got great music and cool graphics, and it's just a super lot of fun. I have played it. It's really cool. Uh, before we leave Mother behind, I do want to note that like um, the version that Hal was going to make is essentially what Brownie Brown eventually made, just on a different format. Like yeah. you can line up like screenshots yeah. with dialogue to the final version of the game and like scenes and like battle things like, and enemies. There trailers were, that were released before the game. Yeah, like the really tiny things with the yeah. giant N64.com thing in the corner. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of elements that didn't make it, like the things about the real time clock. Those yeah, were that was probably, a big deal. Things like that were probably what helped bog down the game. And also the fact that the 64DD was a disaster that imploded. Yeah, Everyone they, in that era wanted to plant a tree and then watch it grow over time. Sorry, yeah. Henry. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, maybe was that what hurt Earthbound 64, that they just had all these tools with the 64DD that they wanted to use them? And I, I think it just, they, they had so many ideas. And, Overscope. Yeah, they mm. just didn't know how to trim that down. When it went to Game Boy Advance, it, be, it was a much more limited system, and so that forced them to... I think just kind of keep things on track and really focus on creating a good story-driven RPG. I know when when you read that interview that I referenced, uh, they're they're not you know they're not terribly explicit about what was the problem, but they essentially say that like we had a bunch of stuff coming together, but to get it all up to the level that we felt comfortable is like enough polish to present to people. Mm. 
would be more work than is feasible yeah. under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And essentially, Iwata at that point had already been sort of like subsumed into Nintendo, which is kind of why I got on this track of talking about Iwata a bit. Like Nintendo brought him on. And I get the I get the impression from what he did in his career, like before he worked at Nintendo and after before he moved on to being the president, I think Iwata became like a fixer. Like mm-hmm. he fixed, you know, balloon fight. He fixed we didn't talk about this at all, but he fixed Pokemon uh, Gold and Silver. Do you guys know about that? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, he, he programmed Dragon Warrior. We talked about yeah. that in uh, the, the Dragon US Quest version of, of Dragon Quest. With, gold, with the Gold and Silver, wasn't it like okay, I, I compressed your game. Now you can fit another game in here. Yeah, basically. he like he made them be able to yeah. put Kanto region inside of it, because... <laughs> which was one of the last great surprises like that. One of the last great oh, the game's not over yet surprises. Yeah. I think so. He and he um he his last big fix was he fixed Melee Smash Brothers Melee. Yep. Mm-hmm. Got his hands dirty and fixed that game before, because uh, you know that was GameCube, and it had to hit there. December. Like it had to be a yeah. GameCube uh-huh. launch window, or they'd be in real trouble. So uh, he, I don't know, like you know, it's it's impossible to know exactly like what his relationship with the company was. But at, at a certain point, um, sort of rewind a bit. Like Hal was in trouble. Like we talked about the early year of Hal, and they were, you know, they sort of grew and grew, and they made all these Famicom games and whatever. But the company wasn't doing so well. And right around, I think it was 90 or 91, I'd have to look it up, they uh, they built a huge new facility in Tokyo and, you know, moved all the developers over there. But they incurred a huge debt in uh, building a whole new headquarters. And they were, like, suddenly things weren't going so well with the games they released and they were on the verge of bankruptcy. And Iwata was promoted to president, I think under the advice of Yamauchi, I recall correctly, said, like, you should be president. You fix the company. And that was around when they did Kirby. So it was, like, right around, like, the original Kirby game. And that's when things started to turn around for HAL under Iwata. Like, they they, they solidified their relationship with Nintendo. It makes me sad that Arcana almost killed the company. They sold <laughs> <laughs> they sold a, a ton of copies of Kirby, um, and they sort of turned the company around. But mm. it was a... It, it's rocky. If you read all these interviews, like when Iwata passed away, I started reading all these different interviews from all these different sources and sort of piecing together this narrative. Mm-hmm. I'd love to, I would love someone else to actually piece together the narrative because it's pretty fascinating <laughs> yeah. from the bits and pieces I read. But no, yeah, I, and I double checked that Akihabara. So they, in 92, when he took over, they moved to a smaller building that's mm-hmm. near, is identified as near Akihabara, mm-hmm. which they have been in ever since. There's a picture of it from the tweet, but oh, nice. for, for the non listeners to look at. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, um, oh. so the, uh, it's one other thing worth mentioning about the Earthbound games that they worked on. Um, it, it, I, I was actually surprised when I was researching this episode that they had, that Hal had worked on Pokemon games because I yeah. am not a Pokemon follower, so I never really played what was it, Pokemon Snap, Pokemon Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm kind of familiar with their existence, but not it's Snap not really is like a, one of those cult classic games. Yeah, that yeah, you oh, yeah. I, I know, I know people love it. Um, <laughs> I just haven't really played mm-hmm. much of it, um, so I didn't realize that was a Hal game. But mm. you know, I started. Thinking about it, like, how did Hal get involved in these? And uh, the co-developer on Earthbound and Mother 3, I think, Ape, uh, became Creatures, Inc., which is one of the three rights holders to the Pokemon <laughs> franchise. There's Nintendo, Creatures, Inc., um, Game, Freak? Game Freak, and the Pokemon Company. So I guess that's four rights holders. Uh, Creatures, Inc. is the company that uh, is kind of responsible for the characters, the creatures, and uh, sort of oversees the spin-off games. So basically, the company that made, the developer that made uh, Earthbound 
became the company that works on all the Pokemon spinoffs mm-hmm. and kind of has that role. So naturally, it makes sense that when they started making spinoffs, they would go to the company that the developer who helped them so much with the Earthbound games mm-hmm. and brought Hal into that. Boy, that's so that's so funny because I had asked I, I've interviewed um, the Game Freak guys a couple times. Uh, and I asked them, like, hey, would you guys ever make a sequel to Pokemon Snap? And now I feel like total idiot because, yeah, they replied with, that was a HAL game. It wasn't ours. Like, we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't make the sequel if we ever did, you know? Uh, but I, I loved – Pokemon Snap came out at a great time in Pokemon fever in, in America because it's – it's based on the anime. Like you mean anime, Professor Oak. The anime Professor Oak is the is giving you directions, and the main character of the game got integrated into the anime for several episodes, which conveniently aired in America at the same time as the game was coming out. And so, uh, you see, the the anime was just showing you this is the world of Pokemon living, and they're everywhere. And here's this game that in good graphics for the time was showing you here are Pokemon hanging out together. Here's Pikachu jumping on a surfboard and, and oh, a Scyther jumped out of this bush. Ah. Yeah. It was a chance to, I guess, not that I have the expert opinion here, but uh, a chance to kind of see the Pokemon world in a different light as opposed yeah. to like, here's the world of humans who are enslaving the Pokemon. Like here's the Pokemon in their what natural habitat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, the variable. <clears throat> So, so the uh, the last of the big HAL games we haven't talked about is maybe the biggest, Smash Brothers. I think so. Yeah, the, the, I, I kind of forgot that they made Smash Brothers. Yeah, they made the first two, right? <laughs> the thing is now everyone makes Smash Brothers. It's right, like yeah. every yeah, Japanese the, company, yeah. like yeah, Game Arts. And, right. Yeah. I think it's more is coalescing from the, from the ether of Japan's game industry, but <laughs> Namco, there was a point when just Sakurai was making it. Yeah, yeah Namco worked on the most recent one, right? Yeah, yeah Namco the and Tekken folks. I mean, I was even looking on... on on uh, Wikipedia, like Hal is sort of labeled as a co-developer on it too. I think lots of people just got involved in it. I, I read like Game Arts was big on. I know Game Arts yeah. coded yeah, they did that the Ninja last Turtles game. One. Oh wow, Brawl. Okay. They yeah. did Brawl. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, because Sora Limited or Project Sora, like they're they just weren't big enough to do us. Well, Smash Sora, Brothers I thought Sora so. just existed explicitly for um, Uprising. They, yeah, Kid Icarus. Yeah, Sora was only a developer, like a. Like, here are a bunch of people sitting in cubicles, like, typing out programming code mm. during Kid Icarus. I see. You know, like... The thing about uh, Smash Brothers, though, is, like, when it launched or when it was preparing to launch, like, this was the height of, like, Nintendo is for kids. And I think, like, me and a lot of, a lot of other people were very dismissive of this idea. Like, yeah, I'm going to have Mario fight Yoshi. That's real cool. You well, know, were, but not only Mario and Yoshi, but toys of Mario and Yoshi. Yeah, that was the They conceit. were all fighting in a toy box. They were not the real Mario and Yoshi. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why That's even Nintendo, more, like, for kids. <laughs> that's what Nintendo tells themselves to sleep better at night. Like, it's not really Mario punching Princess Peach. It's a toy. Probably was, imagination. actually. Yeah, oh, totally. Well, I think that's like speaking of Pokemon spinoffs. There's those Pokemon Rumble games. Make it very clear those are wind up toys fighting each other. It's just that's why I think it's very strange. At Pokemon tournament, they get away with saying like, "No, these are Pokemon punching the crap out of each well, they other." They do that in Pokemon. Yeah, they do, but I, <laughs> they still shy away from that. Like actually, like showing explicitly. It. Oh, show. the Pokemon fainted. Yeah, yeah fainted. not only that, but you know, you see like trap, trap, trap. You don't actually see like a Pokemon run up and smack the other Pokemon in the face. You know, you just see the mm-hmm. little effect. Yeah. And that, like, Smash Brothers originated with Sakurai making a game that wasn't even, like, the... 
it, it was just dudes. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was, a, it was a prototype, and I think yeah. if I recall correctly, it was like in his spare time. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I recall he had a really hard time selling the idea to Nintendo or like to other people. Like they thought it was just too weird, or maybe mm-hmm. just not just like off brand or something. Well, also, not it, Nintendo enough. Nintendo yeah. at the time, especially like if, I don't know if you remember like the PlayStation slash N sixty four era. Oh, like, yeah. like I mean, I'm sure you do, but like I mean, I do, yeah. Yamauchi was like the he was not a big fan of the way games were going yeah. at the time. If was, anyone else is doing it, I hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Play your so. RPGs, you freaks. Yeah, exactly. So I have a friend that losers with brown hair. Ooh, brown hair burn. Probably, uh, probably that overriding emph- like emphasis on that kind of stuff kept maybe kept made it harder to, uh, to mm-hmm. hard stuff. He said like you know, like it never would have happened if it was like you know realistic. "Quote unquote realistic people like Tekken or Virtua Fighter or something, right? Mm-hmm. It would have well, and I also remember being a fan at the time and hearing, you know, and uh, when it first was getting promoted in Japan, I there was talk on the IGN forums I was frequenting, like, will this even come to America? It's too weird, or NOA won't be into. It. I I I figured it would. There were other crossover games like that that didn't. I don't know, that did not come to America before. Weird. It wasn't even that much of a crossover at first. It was really mostly Mario characters. Well, because Mario is the most populous there is. Like, but yeah. was was Lincoln the, the original? He was. Yeah, he's on the cover. Oh, yeah. oh that's yeah. right. Yeah, the ugly, ugly cover of the N sixty four game. I, I like how we like off. Like I said again, again off brand. Like Link has just like giant black pupils and no like real face to speak of. It's it's strange. Well, yeah. If you look at the concept art for other characters, it looks like something they wouldn't approve now. Like, yeah. Even even two years later. The GameCube Nintendo people would not have approved that those character that character art for those maybe people. that was just part of the, look this up. the toy conceit that they were using. Yeah. Like they look a little different because they're toys, right? Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it and then Smash Brothers just it really did I think invent a kind of Nintendo fan you see today who are just yeah they're just into the Nintendo canon and head canon and making <laughs> web series about just all the relationships they make up between the fighters and Smash Brothers. I think as much as like the N sixty or sorry, as much as like the NES era kids like like me, Parish, whatever, like want to think of ourselves as like the OG Nintendo fans. I think what defines today's Nintendo fandom is the kids who grew up with N sixty four. Honestly, yeah. mm-hmm. like the modern the modern twenty year olds. I guess. Yeah, the, so like yeah. what's a third party? The huh? stuff, <laughs> the stuff they were talking about also like the uh, like we're we're releasing uh, you know the remake of uh, Alpha uh, Omega Sapphire whatever. Most Oris. Ruby and Sapphire. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. And they uh that was the same time like Smash Brothers originally came out and we or actually no Melee. And like we're gonna reawaken those fans to like buy three DSs. Like that was like Nintendo's strategy for those two titles. Yeah. They're like, we'll it's reawaken cycle, those fans. Right. It's, the, it's yeah. time moving forward. Yeah. yeah, I I don't like now that the 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 remakes of of Red and Green are now getting old enough to be remade again. I was an adult then. I don't want this yeah. remade. Uh, one thing about Smash Brothers though, I wanted to point out is the fact that it it introduced like more people to Earthbound than Earthbound did. I think like oh yeah and Fire Just, Emblem and yeah. Fire Emblem. You're right. That was with, the, that the was melee. melee yeah, but yeah. we'd never we probably would have never had an English language Fire Emblem. Or it would have been a long time before we w- would have if it wasn't for Marth and Roy in yeah. melee. But I was part of, like, the tiny Earthbound communities uh, that were, uh, like, floating around back then. And the release of this game brought a million people in. Like, not mm. literally a million, but a lot, a of, lot of people. jumped on board. A, it lot was of, probably a lot of fake Earthbound gamers. Accidentally <laughs> well-timed with, like, the rise of emulation. Oh, for also, sure. You know, yeah. like, like, both of those happening kind of concurrently mm-hmm. sort of op- broke open Earthbound for, like, a, a pe- the people who actually became its, like, giant. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if most people listening to this, or a lot of them, found Earthbound through Smash Brothers. 
So we need to pretty much wrap it up at this point. Um, there's actually not too much more to say about Hal at this point. They, you know, they mostly make Kirby games and uh, some other little side projects. The most recent creation they've put together was Box Boy. That's great. Which was really kind of a return to that sort of weird, uh, like anything goes NES aesthetic. Bob, do you want to talk about that at all? Box Boy is, if you hate block pushing puzzles, it is the most reasonable one because you can always move back a step and you're only asked to do a few moves at once. So you're not like, how do I approach this entire room that has 30 things I need to do? It's it's very it, it's still difficult, but it's just it's very very reasonable and very friendly, but not but not easy. Like and it has this very minimalistic uh, style. Like I, I love that game. I think I gave it like a four out of five for US Gamer when I reviewed it. It's it's great. Yeah, Box Boy is the type of game I dreamed of Nintendo making when they said they'd start making downloadable games. You know. Instead of just more more Mario versus Donkey Kong than I ever want to play. <laughs> We're on the, what, eighth one? I don't know. Too funny. At least three, yeah. yeah. That's made by Americans. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> Henry does not want to see minis marching. <laughs> That's for better sure. Better minis than minions. That's true. Oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, it, it just made the so, minis better. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so Hal, in summary, um, pretty much best defined as an essential partner for Nintendo. Also defined by the uh, huge role that Toro Iwata played in the company, and then later Nintendo. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's hard to think about the two of them separately. The more I read about Iwata and Hal and Nintendo in the last, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about, the more I realized that they're really inex- they were inextricable pretty early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and, were thick as thieves, and and not just Iwata, but also like. You you take out the joust concept. <laughs> if, if you take uh, Masahiro Sakurai out of it, like you have a very different, I guess, Nintendo fandom at least would be very different than it is today without Sakurai with Kirby and Smash Brothers and and I guess Kid Icarus Uprising. Like I think everyone forgot that happened. They wouldn't be as insufferable about Evo. Oh no way! Uh-uh. Yeah, and I got, were you in the were, were you at the E three where, where it was Sakurai presenting? It was where they announced Pac Man at uh, for Smash. I was. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You were sitting right next to me. Yeah. Yeah, I was there. Those poor, I felt so bad for Sakurai because he was like cornered with a bunch of the mega Smash Brothers fans there who were just like, um, uh, could I make your game too? <laughs> Jeez. Like, yeah. Or, or uh, this was better in Melee than Brawl. Why I can't you believe you changed Brawl? the frame timing. Yeah. Those two frames make a big difference. I felt like I, I have to assume that's what hell was is, is like for Sakurai. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't want to bag on Smash that's Brothers. That's why he's in pain every day. <laughs> Sakurai had the best. The best damn comeback in there when the guy said, if I beat you in a game, can I work? Can I help you with balancing it? And he said, have you ever made a game before? I'm just like, oh. Sit down. Burn. Sakurai is, is, a, is a genius as far as I'm He's concerned. He's amazing. Uh, anyway, so final thoughts. What to you is the essence of how, Bob? I would say Kirby for the most part, especially with, with what Henry said about how the games have all this extra stuff jammed into them, <laughs> like all these extra modes. I feel like... Just making a Kirby game is not enough for how they want to put extra stuff in there too, and a lot of care is put into those games, and I love them, uh, even if they are a little easy. So that really, it really, I don't know. Hal is Kirby to me, even though I respect them for Earthbound and things like that. Uh, to me, Hal is an overwhelming cuteness, <laughs> yeah. but, but underneath it is, you know, they they. They don't. Uh, they don't lean on it too hard. They their things are super cute, but they don't use that as an excuse to be like to not make well designed games or to skimp on gameplay. 
Yeah, I mean, what I think about when I think of Hal and like the recent Kirby games is this sort of like, yeah, this underneath the the pastel, there's sort of like this like steel will, like 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 if you play the uh, some of the more recent powers they've introduced in like the later Kirby games, like the the Wii one or Triple Deluxe, which is based on that, like. There's a lot of depth, un, probably unnecessary depth, yeah. <laughs> in the in the way you can actually manipulate and control Kirby as these like the fighter and stuff to uh, to, to move. And I think that's Hal is this sort of uh, pastel colored fighting machine. Is kind mm. of it's kind of a, a weird dichotomy, but yeah, I like it. Uh, so to me, I would say the uh, the essence of Hal is actually Earthbound, um, in that it was a game that Hal didn't create. But Hal made it better. They made it work. They made it possible. Yeah. To me, <laughs> to me, Hal is best not as like the standalone entity, but as a partner, as someone who collaborates. And uh, like I, I kind of feel like the story of how they brought Earthbound together really sort of defines that. It really typifies it. So um, even though it wasn't their game, and it might seem kind of weird to say like this is essential Hal. Like the role they played there was really important. And really kind of, I think, speaks well to the company's status and legacy as sort of a pinch hitter. So that's that's where I'm going with that. Anyway, uh, we do need to wrap up this episode. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, you can find us at Retronauts.com. Subscribe on YouTube or iTunes or YouTube, whatever. YouTube and uh, iTube. Yes. <laughs> Check us out at usgamer.net where we'll have full info on this episode and uh, provide some show notes. Um, and as for myself, you can find me at yosgamer.net on Twitter as GameSpite and read my cool stuff at GameBoyWorld.com. Christian? Well, you can always find me at Gamasutra. Um, you can always find me on Twitter at Ferricide. And uh, those are, I mean, if you find me there, you'll find me anywhere. And uh, I'm H-E-N-E-R-E-Y-G on Twitter. Uh, I now work pretty much full-time on lasertimepodcast.com, where I do a ton of other podcasts. So if you didn't hate my voice on this, go over there and check out all these great podcasts I do and uh, and streams and all that stuff. And also we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash lasertime if you wanted to support that. And you can find me on Twitter as Bob Serbo. I also write for US Gamer, Something Awful, and I have a podcast called Talking Simpsons, which should be available on iTunes right now if you're listening to this, probably. Woo. And, of course, you can support Retronauts on Patreon to uh, help feed these poor, starving children and make the podcast possible. That would be awesome. Anyway, that wraps it up for this episode. We'll be back again next week with a tiny episode. And the week after that, with a big one.